Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced for 3CR Community Radio on unceded Wurundjeri country and broadcast to stolen lands right across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. I think it's instinctive for many activists how these things align, how national security agencies perceive the enemy to be those who are dissidents and leaving intact then the much larger problem of climate change. Just like in relation to online harm and safety and extremism, politicians prefer to provide technical solutions and offload their problems to an e-safety commissioner rather than grapple with the potentially toxic political culture they've created. So you can see, I think, if you're an environmental activist, just how these issues align. What if the government stopped you from sharing videos of police violence? or spied on your private communications, and did it in the name of keeping you safe. These are some of the possible outcomes of the federal government's proposed online safety bill. The bill would give broad and unchecked powers to the Australian eSafety Commissioner to censor the internet and further extend the government's ability to intercept our private communications. Environmental activists and campaigns might not be mentioned by the government, but there is a history of politicians and police framing activism as a criminal threat, and there's nothing to stop them from using the online safety bill to do just that. And then later in the show, it's 150 years since the Paris Commune. What can those 19th century revolutionaries teach us about our digital world today? Lizzie O'Shea is a lawyer, writer, and chair of Digital Rights Watch. Lizzie starts by giving us an overview of the online safety bill. So the aims of the bill are largely to improve and promote Australia's online safety. Um, It's uh, been a proposal that's been talked about for a while, but the actual text was only released relatively recently. It includes some schemes um, that are largely at the powers that are given to the Online Safety Commissioner. So the Online Safety Commissioner was an office that was created a few years ago, generally generally to look at the safety of children online, but that remit has expanded over time and it now also uh, covers adults online. So what's contained in this particular bill is a set of schemes which I think um, could be improved upon but are largely necessary and I don't have a big problem with. So things like addressing cyberbullying, addressing cyber abuse of adults, as well as provisions to prevent and deal with uh, non-consensual sharing of images, so things like revenge porn. So schemes like that which make a lot of sense and there should be complaints mechanisms so where an individual can make a complaint to the Online Safety Commissioner and that can be dealt with. What's also included in the Act, though, is a much broader set of powers at the disposal of the Commissioner that aren't based on complaints that essentially set a level of expectations for how services and um, platforms will uh, host content, what kind of content they'll host, but also giving the Commissioner very broad powers to take down any content that might be considered harmful. And how that's defined in the Act is quite alarming, uh, given that it's so broad-ranging. So it is things that you'd imagine, like um, basic pornography, for example, but it's much broader than that. It's basically any content that would come in as R18+, plus, 
Um, so that includes, you know, films like Kill Bill, for example. Uh, it's, it's reliant on a classification system that's pretty outdated that was designed for literature and, and film, uh, which is now being uh, placed into the internet sphere. And I'm not sure it really covers the things that uh, many people would consider to be harmful. In, in, in essence, the commissioner now has the power to issue takedown notices for any content that might not be appropriate for a minor to see. Um, that's at its highest. Uh, obviously, it's at the discretion of the commissioner, but that's a pretty alarming set of powers at that commissioner's disposal. Let's talk about this commissioner. So who is the commissioner? If we can kind of expand upon that, the concerns about the commissioner and their role and the accountability or lack of accountability to the public. Yeah. Uh, so the commissioner is a woman called Julie Iman Grant. She's um, a, a very articulate and presentable person to be playing a role like this, I think. Um, I don't think I'm being too cynical in saying that. I think she's got the intention, good intentions, of course, but she's um, been in the role since it began. And um, essentially, this proposal will give her large powers with almost no accountability. So she can issue a takedown notice. And to the extent that a service provider or an individual who might be affected wants to appeal that, they'll have to go to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which can take a very long time um, and can be, you know, if that's your source of income uh, and you've been deplatformed, that can be very damaging for you. I mean, so there's a whole group of people from um, the sex industry, for example, who's very concerned about this. Sex positive educators as well are very concerned about this. Uh, places for those for people from the, the sex work industry to communicate. They're, they're worried about those kinds of platforms um, they, or being deplatformed, I should say. But what there's a bigger picture as well, which is that uh, this act or this proposal doesn't just deal with sexual content or um, content that we might consider unsuitable for a minor to see from that perspective, but also violent material um, and. This, I think, is a big concern for activists um, who might be particularly interested in holding power accountable for use of violence against them um, and recording that and using social media platforms to do that. So, again, um, the commissioner would have the power to uh, issue takedown notices to platforms, to deplatform uh, websites and the like, uh, with very little accountability for someone in a meaningful and timely fashion to be able to appeal a decision like that. And I think that's when we should start to worry as activists as well, as showing solidarity with our friends in the sex worker industry. We should be very concerned about how this might affect the ability to use these platforms to hold power accountable, particularly, I think, in the context of protests and police violence. Let's, let's now drill down a bit more on the relationship to activism, which you've started to talk about, and specifically uh, one aspect of the bill, which is the one that relates to abhorrent and violent material. So you've given the example of, uh, say, police violence. So, and if we're sort of thinking about how this might relate to environmental activism uh, at the blockade IMARC, um, well, the, the blockade outside of IMARC, which was a mining industry conference in Melbourne in 2019, police were extremely violent, uh, which included bashing protesters, uh, using of um, chemical weapons, pepper spray against protesters, and also flashing white power or white supremacist symbols. Uh, this violence by police to environmental activists blockading the IMARC mining conference was captured and shared online on social media and, and other places 
um, as well as uh, being important for possible legal action. So thinking about an example such as the violence uh, police towards activists at something like the blockade against IMARC, how might the um, abhorrent violent material blocking scheme relate to that? Yeah, well, so this idea of blocking um, content that's considered uh, abhorrent and violent, um, uh, this came out of the really terrible, obviously terrible mass shooting in Christchurch, which was live streamed on Facebook, as I'm sure many listeners know. So that produced a pretty knee-jerk response from our government, um, blaming social media platforms, which in my view, I think deflects blame from politicians who might have turned a blind eye to online extremism, might have uh, cultivated some of it itself by themselves by vilifying um, Muslims and the like in, in uh, our daily dialogue. Uh, and so I think there's a real keenness among the political class to deflect responsibility for political extremism by using technical tools to block violent and abhorrent material. Now, that is something that I think many people might find compelling at least or, or consider to be an important um, pursuit to stop uh, right-wing and um, white nationalist extremists making use of social media platforms. But we think it's very concerning when a wholesale blocking regime is put in place to allow Commissioner to make decisions about this when I think inevitably uh, it will be used not just against extreme right-wing activists, that activists at places like the IMARC blockade, as you mentioned. So, you know, we've already seen how, um, you know, content that shows police violence can be transformative in social movements with the murder of George Floyd on, that um, was caught on camera, which is now being, um, you know, the subject of criminal proceedings underway in the US. Uh, but also even back here in Australia, there's been, um, you know, video content of uh, police officers targeting Aboriginal people and the like. Um, and then, of course, documenting police brutality at protests, uh, including the IMARC demonstration, but many others uh, over time. And I think it's almost inevitable that this is kind of content will be blocked as well. Um, and that's not least because I think there's many, um, uh, you know, entrenched lobbying interests that might be asking the um, the commissioner to do that kind of work. But also because in other countries where these regimes have been introduced, that has been what's happened. Uh, when this power is concentrated in unelected and unaccountable officials, there's a real tendency to then, you know, block electoral violence that might occur or other kinds of contentious protests that might challenge authority. It's an inevitable uh, problem. So I don't think there's, um, that means that we've got, we're powerless to do anything about, um, you know, for example, right-wing online extremism and, and the live streaming of something like the Christchurch massacre. I think there are ways we can deal with it, but introducing a, a broad-based power without thinking through how, how it might be used against activists who are legitimately critiquing power, leg legitimately trying to draw attention to police violence when it's excessive. Um, I think we have to be very careful about making sure any powers that potentially might lead to that are drafted narrowly and specifically make very strong exceptions um, for the kind of content we've been talking about, uh, which is really about protests and, and political speech. So. It's just not good enough, I think, in this day and age to have broad-based powers like that that don't take into account the nuance that we need to be able to not um, discard people's speech rights and, and people's you know, assembly rights uh, in the name of trying to protect people from online extremism. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. 
On today's show, we're speaking with Lizzie O'Shea from Digital Rights Watch about the online safety bill and possible threats to activism. Another aspect of the proposed online safety bill is around information gathering powers, powers to investigate and encryption. Can you tell us a bit more about that and, and the concerns? Yeah, so one other aspect of the bill that I think is quite important is that it, it gives the Commission very broad-based powers to, to conduct investig investigations, which includes uh, a requirement that a person must provide any documents in their possession that contains relevant information to the Commissioner if, if asked to do so. Uh, and that includes, uh, it looks to us, the capacity to undermine encryption. And we think this might be where this bill is eventually going, um, in part because the eSafety Commissioner is spoken exactly in these terms. She's argued against end-to-end -end encryption, essentially saying that it'll make investigations into online sexual abuse much more difficult. Now, we tend to have this debate as digital activists about encryption a lot of the time, that it's a tool that is used by people, obviously, to do things that are not good, but it's used by people to protect their communications uh, and to ensure their privacy, which can be critically important for um, lots of different people, but people who come to mind are like journalists and whistleblowers, people who are engaging in protests or dissidents. So encryption is a very important tool uh, and it's not something that we should weaken, um, you know, I think, without thinking through the very serious consequences of doing so, because once you weaken it for one purpose, it can be weakened for all purposes. So creating a backdoor for uh, investigating online sexual abuse material uh, can mean that backdoor can be used to watch what protesters, dissidents, journalists and whistleblowers might be doing as well. Um, and there's much bigger arguments about encryption. But um, I think it is important to point out the fact that this attack on encryption or the claim that encryption is, is permitting illegal conduct to occur, it's a very familiar one for us because it's been deployed by uh, national security agencies and law enforcement for many years. And uh, it's very frustrating that we have to visit it again in the context of, of this bill, which talks a lot about protecting children and adults from abuse and, and um, all sorts of harm online when we think that um, there's probably a broader agenda here, which is law enforcement and national security want to undermine encryption. Uh, and I think that gives us all a stake in figuring out why that's not a good idea and how we can resist it. Well, let's talk a bit more about that broader picture then. So this potential attack on encryption uh, in the online safety bill, which you've said uh, the e-safety commissioner has uh, actually spoken about uh, is the latest in uh, ongoing um, legal and other uh, moves to undermine encryption. So if you could tell us a bit more uh, about the, the recent history of attacks in, on encryption uh, here in Australia and then also the bigger picture of surveillance and a kind of a, a rapidly growing state surveillance apparatus. Mm. Yeah, well, encryption's been a target of uh, national security agencies and law enforcement for a long time. Actually, the Five Eyes, which I'm sure your listeners know, is essentially an intelligence sharing allegiance between the five major Anglophone countries, so uh, the UK, the US, Canada, New Zealand and Australia. The Five Eyes regularly meet, their national security ministers meet, uh, Peter Dutton goes to those meetings, and we don't know much about it, of course, because it all happens in secret, but for years they've been talking about undermining encryption, and Australia was the site at which this 
occurred. At one point, um, people might remember the AA Bill or the AA Act, um, which was a bill which essentially gave powers to law enforcement agencies to build weaknesses into encrypted communication systems for law enforcement purposes including in situations where they might not even need a warrant. Um, and we argued very hard against that because we think encryption is quite important um, for uh, everyone's digital security, for having um, platforms that work, that people can trust, that they know that um, spooks aren't listening into what they're doing, uh, that it's really important for journalists who might be talking to sources who are in sensitive situations. Uh, it's very important for activists who might want to communicate about organising their activities. Um, so we've all put a stake in it, I think, generally, to protect ourselves against um, state-sponsored terrorism and uh, state-sponsored hacking, I should say, and also kind of criminal activity. Encryption does protect us all against that. But also it, it's part of, I think, a fair society in which we've got the right to assemble without constantly being surveilled. But really what national security agencies do is they lobby government very hard to get their way to expand their powers. And they've been doing that uh, directly through things like the AA Act, um, the Access and Assistance Act, I should say, to undermine encryption and to give them back doors into these systems. But they also tend to do it in other contexts as well. And this Online Safety Act, I think, is one example where this is a bill ostensibly about online harm. So why is the Safety Commissioner talking about undermining encryption, which is actually a protection for lots of people's communication against uh, kind of criminal behaviour by hackers and the like? Like, um, but also just generally for our digital security. So it, to me, it's, it's the signals that there's a strong lobby in Canberra when, um, when various uh, ministers are drafting these bills and their departments are drafting these bills to frame certain people as the enemy and certain tools, uh, technical tools, as being harmful to their investigations and to our general safety when I think there's a much bigger much bigger um, issue at foot. And environmental activists are not immune from this. They're, they're often seen as the enemy, as dissidents who might wish to, um, who national security agencies might wish to target in some of their surveillance work. And I think we do need to take that, that risk really seriously and think about how we can protect ourselves, but also highlight how then bills like this, which seek to throw encryption um, into the mix as a dangerous tool that protects criminals, it can then also be used against activists in other contexts where national security agencies want to target um, encryption as a way of um, then of stand, as a tool that stands in their way of investigating um, dissidents, activists, um, whistleblowers, and the like who might otherwise use that as a source of protection. So I think we can see bigger dynamics at play where there's a long-term objective to undermine encryption. And we might suffer the consequences when it's normalised in um, in examples like this, this online safety bill, uh, which ostensibly deals with online harm, but we're still managing to talk about why encryption is this big boogeyman that um, that prevents proper investigation of these issues. Do you believe that there are changes that could be made to the proposed online safety bill that would make the bill acceptable and actually make it deal with the purported uh, aims of the bill, which is to keep children and adults safe online. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of changes that could be made um, and they're probably um, recommendations we'd make in the re relation to lots of other kind of national security legislation. So I think it's kind of telling that we have to make them in this context as well. So I think it could have a sunset clause on it so that it doesn't, um, we can take stock at the end of that period and work out whether this proposal is actually working. Um, I think that the Online Safety Commission could do more work um, talking with relevant stakeholders, um, you know, 
people from the sex work industry and the like, but also activists who um, who might be, you know, filming uh, for accountability, um, police and the like, uh, to make sure that the powers are drafted narrowly enough to permit people to assemble and record and try and hold power accountable um, through social media platforms. Um, but I also think what we really need to see is improved um, appeal rights for people who are subject to takedown notices that are quick, that are cheap, that are effective. Um, and what would come with that is a greater amount of transparency about how these powers are used. This is a, a really a booming field. The eSafety Commissioner has a large budget, is being given a large budget to boost um, these activities that will come if this bill is passed. Uh, and that's that should come, I think, with significant responsibility to explain what kind of content is being taken down and why. Uh, and that is, I think, one of the most important ways we can protect against Mission Creek, that um, we can avoid a situation where it's going to be used for all sorts of different purposes, um, to target activists, to target, you know, people like, you know, sex positive educators and the like, as well as the sex industry. We can make sure that it's actually directed at, at harm rather than just what uh, the e-safety commissioner might consider to be harmful on, at their whim um, and that it reflects community expectations um, of what that role should be. Uh, and it's just kind of astonishing to me that you can be given a huge amount of money or, or flagged to be given a huge amount of money for these things with very, then you know, little requirements around making sure you account for it. Um, so those kinds of basic things, it's just a, a, a common feature in, in this field of um, tech policy that powers are often granted that are far too broad with little accountability uh, and, and few rights for appeal. So this stuff is pretty standard um, and I really, um, I'm, I get tired of the digital rights activists are having to say the same thing each time. And where our hope is that more people we recruit to this movement from diverse backgrounds and diverse movements, including environmental activists who see the problems with this, will strengthen our movement so that these kinds of basic uh, suggestions for reform can be uh, can be incorporated into the proposal. Now, for listeners who are interested to learn more and to take action uh, on this bill, mm. where can they go? Well, you can have a look at our website. Um, we're obviously running campaigns. We've um, put in a submission and we've spoken to the relevant parliamentary committee. Uh, the process, as you can probably imagine, if you're listening to this, has been extremely truncated and it's not as though um, lawmakers are particularly open to listening to criticisms of the bill. But uh, in fact, I've seen lately as public discussions bubbled up about this greater awareness and knowledge and including some interest from lawmakers in putting forward different alternatives. So I would say the time is really um, now to assist us to kind of boost our numbers and um, join the campaign. Uh, and you can uh, do that and find out more about this particular proposal on Digital Rights Watch's website. It's the 150th uh, anniversary of the Paris Commune. And you wrote hmm. about uh, the Paris Commune in your book, Future Histories, and you've, you've written about it in relation to, to digital technologies and, and the lessons that perhaps we could learn today from the Paris Commune. So in this 150th anniversary of the Paris Commune, as activists, as people concerned about rights, uh, freedoms in the digital sphere, what's a pertinent takeaway I think it's fascinating that the Paris Commune still captures our imagination 150 years after the event. And I think it's for good reason, because it was the first kind of concrete experiment in democracy uh, that the residents of Paris were just totally sick of constantly being war, at war with their neighbours. 
and they took charge of their city and started to organise it in a completely different way to how anyone had thought about these things before. It was a spontaneous but organised movement. I think it's really interesting to observe the activities they engaged in. And it's really inspiring to read about it because some of those ideas are still radical even by today's standards. Um, so different approaches to how you would organise work, the role of the church, rent, um, you know, how, how people would um, communicate and organise and discuss art, I think is a really interesting one. And how art was made more accessible for everyone to kind of be involved in as, as an artist and a critic. Uh, and this kind of experiment in concrete democracy is the kind of um, approach I think we ought to take about how we might build online spaces. That in fact, we shouldn't just leave them to large corporations. We shouldn't just uh, resign ourselves to the fact that governments will surveil us when we engage in life online, that we can actually use these online spaces if we build them and, um, and approach them in the right way as places of experimentation in concrete um, terms in democracy. And that it can, we can make use of the good parts of, of these spaces to create uh, more democratic societies in which people are encouraged to participate in all sorts of aspects of life rather than um, defer to experts or their superiors. So I, I like the idea of um, of reviving the spirit of the Paris Commune in the 21st century. And in, in my book, I talk a little bit about um, about technological utopianism and how how that kind of that movement that came afterwards sits in contrast to the Paris Commune, which was a much more concrete idea of democracy. And that we can be too deferential to technology in, in um, seeking to solve some of our social problems, or those in power certainly do. Uh, and so I think this is a moment to kind of revive that spirit also as a buttress against those who would prefer to develop technology as a way to solve our, solve our social problems uh, rather than grapple with injustices they exist in the material world for everyday people. So, yeah, I, I, I love going back to the Paris Commune to read about it because I think it's a fascinating time and the ideas are really exciting and it feels very contemporary and modern. Um, and I, I think one of our jobs as activists is to revive those spirits and keep those traditions alive. And I think there's lots to learn uh, and lots we can put into practice in the 21st century um, from that movement that took place in the 19th. Wizzy O'Shea, lawyer, writer and chair of Digital Rights Watch. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you've missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Or if you're listening via your favourite podcasting service, why not subscribe and give us a review? Or even better, why not tell a friend about us? Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced on Wurundjeri Country, with thanks to 3CR Community Radio Melbourne. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or send us a letter, care of 3CR. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. Thank you.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.